human beings are reflective creatures, so it's kind of an inevitable thing that we do. My angle was, well, but let's rein it in. So, Welcome to the Own Wisdom Podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Grossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for the society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners. Uh, you've been great. If you like this show, please keep on rating us on iTunes and other platforms that you're using. But so far, we already see very positive feedback. And uh, thank you. <laughs> I don't, I don't uh, think all those ratings are coming from my mother either, either. I think some of them are real people. So that's very encouraging. That's right. That's right. And it's, like, it's, just, it's, it's nice to see that it resonates with people. Today, we have a special guest, our first philosopher, Valerie Tiberius, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Minnesota. Hi, Valerie. How are you doing? Hi. Good. Good. Thanks for inviting me. I must say I'm a little shocked that I'm your first philosopher in a podcast called On Wisdom. But Well, there's some big questions right there on this. A lot to get into. <laughs> right. And also, the reason you're first is because we started only half a year ago. And uh, that's uh, we didn't have a <laughs> chance to really... Uh, we were slowly approaching the, the philosophical foundations. Uh, but yes, you are indeed the first. I, kind of, I actually have a question that I want to go straight into, but it's quite a big one. But you probably see where I'm coming from. Valerie, when you look back on your life, do you think you will be happy with, with the way you lived it? Let's delve right into the <laughs> deeply personal. I do. I wrote a book called The Reflective Life, and I think a lot about how I will look back on my life and how I do look back at my, on my life at the moments when I check in. Mm. So I, I sort of tried to live my life in a way that I do the things that I think are important. So it, that's not to say I won't have any regrets. I'm, mm. I'm sure everybody has some regrets, but I think I'll be basically content with mm. how it went. So, Igor, what about you? Is the life you're building one that you think you'll look back on and go, yeah, that was kind of about right. That's That fitted with what I wanted to do. No. <laughs> so, it's not too late I mean, you, know, you can change the spirit, yeah the, for sure <laughs> but you know Russians are prone to uh, contrafactual thinking and thinking about regrets and uh, uh, contemplating and ruminating and I think I'm definitely fitting that stereotype very well I mean I'm not at the stage yet where I would say I have accepted my past life exactly for what it is and that uh, all those mistakes and errors that I made and I made plenty are just negligible or I can just uh, be fine with that. I think I'm still struggling with that. But you know, there is still I hopefully have still have a few years to live and work on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That. This is a big this is a common theme, isn't it, in, in sort of philosophy is this idea of a reflective survey, looking back on your life and you know, using that moment as a as a sort of a guide to how you should construct your life now. But I was just thinking, why is what's so special about that moment? Like why does that moment seem so much more important than all the others that we're prepared to kind of shuffle everything around all the other moments that lead up to that moment in order that that moment is a good one. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like why not sort of do whatever you like the rest of your life and have one moment of regret at the end. And you know, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I actually think that I, so I think you're right that philosophers tend to emphasize that, that kind of retrospective, perspective. And I actually think that we tend to put too much emphasis on it. So when you asked me, as Igor was answering your question, I was thinking about how great is it really to say that I won't, uh, that I'll look back on my life and think I did a good job, because I've also 
throughout my life, I've really struggled with anxiety. I'm a very anxious person Mm -hmm. and that decreases the quality of my life. But it's not going to be something that when I look back at the end, I'm not going to say, I wish I hadn't been anxious. Of course, Mm -hmm. I I do wish I'd never had anxiety, but since it isn't Mm -hmm. something that I can, that I don't choose to have it, it's a momentary felt experience that has decreased the quality of my life as opposed to one of these sort of, you know, part of my grand plan. Mm. Um, and so, so I think, you know, if I could snap my fingers and change something about my life in a magical sort of way, I would get rid of the anxiety stuff, right. which wouldn't, I don't think that would change my end of life perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, it would mean that at the end of my life, I say, Oh, I wasn't anxious. That yeah. was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I just, I think philosophers tend to overemphasize that point of view. Well, I suppose on in terms of the anxiety, that's not a choice you made, is it? So whereas these other aspects of why you're encouraged to think about the the end moment is is to sort of guide your choices in a certain direction, I imagine. But if something like anxiety yeah. is not a choice one makes. That's right. So there are things you can do about right, it. Right, right, yeah. I mean, the other thing, I suppose, is that that reflective point of view where you're asking, how how is my life going?, I think it's a mistake to think it only happens at the end. I mean, it happens mm. all the time right. when you, especially when you make a big decision and you're caused to think, you know, you get a new job offer and you're thinking, should I move across the country? Um, or you're thinking of having a child or a second child and you're wondering if that's going to make your life better or worse. I mean, those are moments where we also ask these kinds of mm. reflective questions. And, and also, I mean, when you were saying ego, like, well, there's some things, you know, some things I've done, which I would do differently. Is there seems something slightly anemic about living a life that you look back on and you can stand by every single decision you took? You know, I mean, yeah, wouldn't you want there Very, to be right. some sort of, wow, that was that was a mistake. And, you know, because otherwise you're there's a suspicion that you're living too close within, you know, far too much within the realm of possibility of what you could have done if you never made a mistake. Yeah. And that, that you're therefore missing out on things that you wouldn't plan for, you know, I mean, some of the most exciting things that happen are things that are a surprise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, I'm kind of interested, we'll get into this in a bit, but like in the stuff of yours that I read, you talk quite a lot about, you know, especially as a philosopher, you're suspicious about overthinking by the sounds of it and you sort of sort of write quite a bit about you know there is a benefit to sort of diving into things and 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 being non-reflective one last question so i think igor Mm -hmm. would you consider yourself cynical would you consider yourself pessimistic optimistic what do you think um i i don't don't think so i mean i think i i'm probably a realist uh, where i uh, i'm looking for the future and hope for the best but i prepare for the worst and uh, that doesn't make me a cynic in the sense that i don't anticipate that everything that will happen in the future will uh, go the wrong way um that would be a horrible way to live life probably so yeah no i i I definitely don't think i'm a, a pessimist in all aspects but I think it's good to be vigilant and to be prepared and uh, not only plan for the best possible outcome, but for a range of different outcomes. Right. What about you, Valerie? Naturally, maybe because I, I know that from your writing, you're sort of quite pro-optimism. But what what sort of comes to you naturally? <laughs> yeah, I'm naturally optimistic and my optimism has been seriously challenged by the current political situation in the U.S. Right. <laughs> you guys yeah. don't live here. It's, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
it's depressing and it doesn't make you feel very good about human nature. I wasn't so much um, in, in what I've written about optimism and cynicism. I wasn't so much worried about general optimism about what might happen, but I was really focused on a kind of cynicism and optimism about human nature and human potential. Because mm. um, mm-hmm. it struck me that there are a lot of academics who are kind of deeply cynical about people and who think, mm. you know, people are just, people suck. Mm. Um, and, and I thought that wasn't a very good way to live your life. Um, but really that, I, I, it has been challenged lately. Mm. I, my my own optimism about human nature is at an all-time low right now. <laughs> right. Well, that's a, that's a very exciting, po- optimistic start to the program. So um, <laughs> this mainly we've had, as you say, it's, it's uh, shameful that it's taken till episode nine to get a philosopher on. Mainly we've had psychologists on and wisdom is a topic that kind of traditionally you'd think of as more being associated with philosophy, but it is something that psychologists are looking at. And in your writings, you've kind of said that you're hoping in, that you can show a way that the, the strengths of the two approaches, philosophy and, and psychology, they can sort of, they can tackle different parts of this problem. So what do you think of as the two disciplines, what can they each bring that the other can't to questions of how to live well and, and how to live wisely? And that's, that's for Valerie. That's a huge question. So I'll, I'll say a few things and see where we go. On the one hand, I'm not, I was going to say pessimistic, but at least skeptical about what uh, empirical methods can do to illuminate the notions of wisdom that philosophers have been concerned about. So to take you to take just to take an example, Mm -hmm. a part of wisdom that I really was keen on when I was writing the last book, The Reflective Life, was something that I called perspective. And that's a sort of ability to, well, to literally put things in perspective to to bring your thoughts and feelings in line with your actual convictions about really what really matters in life, to not get swept away by the trivial, to not put too much emphasis on the things that even you, they don't even matter by your own lights, and to be able to shift between perspectives that are more reflective and more engaged in the moment. So that to me was an essential part of wisdom that doesn't really get talked about as wisdom in the history of philosophy. Mm. And I once sat down with um, a a couple of psychologists from my own uh, institution to Mm. ask them if perspective could be measured. And as I started to talk to them about it, it just seemed kind of impossible. (laughs) So, so I, 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 so that made Mm. me worry about a gap between what we identify as a valuable pattern of thought and behavior, um, a valuable trait or uh, adaptation or whatever, and mm-hmm. the ability, the, 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 the tools that psychologists have to measure things. I, I worry mm-hmm. about the size of that gap. Mm-hmm. So what exactly was the, uh, uh, sorry for the interruption, uh, the, okay. the difficulty with measurement there? The, can you, uh, if you can remember uh, the, the gist of that conversation, what made you feel like there is, it's very difficult or maybe impossible to measure? I the think, so the main difficulty, I think, and this was quite a while ago, but the main thing mm-hmm. was that it seemed like for this kind of thing that self-report would be a very bad way of right. determining whether you have perspective because people who emotional states and actions and thoughts are not in line with their values are typically not aware that this is the case. So somebody who puts too much 
emphasis on something that's trivial is <laughs> precisely not in a position to recognize that they're doing mm. that because if they were, they would stop. Mm. Yeah, it was a problem with trying to measure it by self-report. And then the thought was other kind, other ways that you might try to measure such a thing would be... Mm like really expensive and time consuming. And I mean, maybe, maybe I didn't talk to the right people. <laughs> maybe I didn't, it was quite a while ago. So maybe I wasn't informed enough about the other kinds of methods that you all have. Are you, are you still fairly uh, pessimistic about bridging that gap then? You know, because in that book, you were you're trying to suggest there was a way that this, this could be done. Um, is that something that you've sort of moved on from a little bit now? So actually, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not pessimistic. I just so I was going to say there, you know, two, sort of two sides to my right. thoughts about about bridging this gap. On the one hand, I see the obstacles because I have thought about how I would translate some of the aspects of wisdom that I care about into something operationalizable and testable. And it seems very mm -hmm. daunting. But on the other hand, I've, there's been a lot of success, it seems to me. The, the success that I'm familiar with is more I'm not uh, writing about wisdom at the moment. I've been writing about well-being, mm, and I'm working right. with a psychologist right now on sort of putting together uh, my theory of well-being with a psychological empirical theory of personality so that you have a kind of mechanism that's lined up with the theory of well-being. And that, that project is kind of fun and going going well. So mm. I can see how my philosophical view um, can be aligned with something that makes some of the assumptions that I have testable. Right. So that so when it comes to wisdom research, it seems to me that a lot of the things psychologists have done are really cool. I like the research where people you have people identify um, exemplars of wisdom, and then you ask, obviously, you guys will know a lot more about this than I will. But so people identify candidates of wisdom, and then you find out what the features that those candidates are, uh, what what features they have in common. Is that roughly a project that's happening? Yeah, yeah, there've been a lot of those. Yeah, but th that's definitely one of the major streams. Try to look at the narratives of candidates for wisdom or examples. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a type of research that philosophers should take into account because one of the problems with philosophy is that, you know, you have a bunch of white upper middle class Americans and British people relying on their own intuitions about what things are mm. and <laughs> generating these theories based on these ideas that are really quite, they could be quite parochial. So to bring into our thinking the perspectives of a broader selection of, of the global population, I think that's really important in, insofar as we want our theories to be, you know, mm. universal or at least fairly general. Um, yeah, I was thinking, you know, are you sort of uh, viewed with suspicion for even talking about such a thing, you know, as, as measuring things uh, amongst philosophers? Or is there a movement? You know, how do other philosophers think about this idea that perhaps we should start to test some of these ideas on real people? Or do they view that as a sort of sullying of the kind of the abstract nature of philosophy? Well, what's your sense on that? Yeah, I think the uh, philosophical community is split. And I think mm -hmm. that um, the people who think philosophers ought to pay more attention to empirical research are that that half of the divide is growing, especially in moral psychology. So um, people who are interested in the kinds of questions that like people like Hume and Kant 
uh, questions about moral judgment and whether morality is predominantly to do with reason or with sentiment, that field has become very infused with attention to psychological research, which I think is a excellent thing. Um, there are other, then there are a bunch of philosophers who just think the empirical work is irrelevant. It's not, you know, mm-hmm. uh, not bad. It's just <laughs> can't be relevant to our philosophical questions. But I think it's, I, they're definitely, when I first started doing this kind of work, people regarded it with suspicion and that's becoming less true. Just drilling into that a little bit, is that suspicion, do you think, is that coming from the fact that they think the empirical research isn't good enough so essentially it's going to throw up noise and they're maintaining a purity by avoiding it and and, you know and if they could be convinced that it really was good enough then they'd fold it in or is there something else going on they just they don't like the idea of it really sort of being directed by the real world what what's what's your sense about why where the objection comes from yeah that's a that's a really good question i mean i think it's complicated. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of the people who are suspicious about attempts to bring the empirical into the philosophical don't know enough about the psychology research to know that it, (laughs) to to be suspicious of it. So it's, I mean, it's not that, it's not that they look at the methods and think, oh, these methods can't establish these conclusions. They don't, they don't Mm -hmm. understand the research well enough. And so, Right. Yeah. Um, they don't have a they don't have a, a basis for thinking mm. it's the pr- the problem with the research. Instead, I think it's that philosophical questions have just not been thought to be empirical questions. So a lot right. of philosophical questions are normative questions, questions about what ought to be, how we ought to think about things, mm. um, what should happen. And, you know, I think because people think there's some kind of gap between what's descriptively true and what ought to be the case there's that's a sort of in principle reason to to think that philosophy is always going to be its own separate domain right so Um, why look at human behavior when that's what is when when we're more interested in what should be yeah yeah i think as the um empirical what what should you call it the, the empirically informed movement in philosophy is growing, there are more people who know more about the science and who are skeptical for reasons that have to do with what the science actually shows. But those right. folks are, they're already engaged with the science. Yeah. So that's a, that's a different sort of divide. Do either of you watch The Good Place? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I oh, love that. Just a little show. bit. A yeah. Because I was I was watching it earlier and I was like, oh, I am talking to a real philosopher later. Um, <laughs> and I wondered. Yeah, I wondered what um, <laughs> what what do philosophers think? Well, don't forget philosophers. You can't speak for all philosophers. It's not fair to pin everything on 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 you. But uh, do you like it? I love the show. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And um, I mean, this is a show where. Scanlon's what we owe for each other, what we owe to each other, which is like a dry philosophical monograph, very important among professional philosophers, but not a book that anyone else would ever have read. And it, it, it forms like a crucial plot point in the, in the, in the show that I just thought that was so cool. It's extraordinary that when you're watching it, you're going, how did this program get made? I mean, like, it's really good, but I can't imagine it being pitched and somewhat, you know, how did they, how did they get the money together? My understanding, the backstory of that, and uh, this is just me uh, 
uh, reporting the hearsay from uh, I, I was giving a talk at uh, Canadian Film Center a few days ago and I was uh, uh, I was approached exactly about that because I gave a talk on Whistler's like do you know the good place and then we started talking right. uh, and uh, apparently the producer who is the same producer who I think that uh, some of the uh, very successful US shows he had uh, he could pick what he wanted to do right. So he was like so carte blanche. Like, maybe he, yeah, maybe exactly. he did like four four seasons of like twenty four with Jack Bauer, and they were like, right, <laughs> you've, earned the, you've earned the right. You can do what you like. And he's like, well, you're not. You're gonna love this next one. <laughs> like, where, where, where's the uh, CIA agent? And no CIA agent. And it's gonna form. It's gonna be about moral philosophy. Okay, um, but it works. I, I mean, I really enjoy it. Uh, let's uh, uh, move to the big questions that unite often. I, I hope or should unite. I uh, should unite philosophy and psychology, and that is the question of values and and the role of values in our lives. Valerie, psychologists have a particular take on it. It's often empirical, but I think uh, uh, you, as a philosopher, have a somewhat broader take. Why don't you start and explain to us and to our lay audience? What do you mean by values and what do philosophers in general mean by values? There's no answer to the what do philosophers generally mean. But uh, what, <laughs> so, so um, my own view about values is that if we're talking about essentially the, the psychology of valuing, so mm -hmm. what it is to value something, values are complex patterns of attitudes where you have desires, emotional dispositions, and judgments of some kind. So, for example, if you value being a podcast host, you, you'll, you know, you'll want to find new guests to interview and you'll want to um, spend some time thinking about what sorts of questions to ask them. You'll have the emotional dispositions like joy when you get nice feedback that isn't from your mother <laughs> and um, feeling ashamed when you or maybe not quite shame, but feeling bad about yourself if you do an episode and everybody hates it, you'll also have, the, so the judgment component is that you'll take this project of yours, hosting this podcast, to be something that should figure into your planning about how you live your life. So you think it, it gives you reasons to do things, you believe that it's good for you, That so th those are the kinds of judgments that go along with it. So Values for me are a kind of um, an ideal. Not everything that a person values has all those three components, the desires, emotions, and judgments um, in a harmonious way, but that's something to aim for, a value, values that are psychologically integrated in that way. Philosophers in general have tended to define values. There's, there's sort of a debate about whether, whether values are a belief or a desire type of state. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that can be an important decision to make if you're asking certain kinds of philosophical questions. But if what you're doing is what I'm doing, which is trying to build a theory of um, well-being or the good life, I think it's important to see values in this kind of richer way. So right. what is psychologists take? How do psychologists understand values? Oh, they just give people a bunch of scales to fill out and then uh, then claim that whatever those scales represent are values. Uh, I mean, this is a very yeah. cynical way to say it. <laughs> there you go, but cynical. I knew, I, it. Mean, I knew it. When I've read psychologists, the, so the, the people who do these, these massive surveys and ask people what they value, 
when they but when they do, I was going to say when they bother to, but when, when they do articulate what they mean by a value, I don't think it sounds too far from what I'm talking about. No, uh, absolutely not. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I had a question when you were talking there, you was giving an example of values and something you value might be being a podcast host, for example, because I was thinking I mean, the next thing I was thinking about was how universal are values. And obviously, you know, not everyone wants to be a podcast host. There's quite a lot of them out there, but not everyone wants to be a podcast host. So at what level do you look at it? You know, what is what is that person getting from that hosting? Is it that they're self-directed? So you can maybe you can say not everyone wants to be a podcast host, but what, what one individual gets from podcasting, someone else gets from football when someone else gets from i don't know poetry mm-hmm. or something so that that thing that they all get is that then a universal value uh, you know or is that meaningless because if you just keep going up and up and up do you get to the point where you just say everyone values well-being and that doesn't really mean anything yeah I, so i think there are a couple of distinctions that are helpful here one is the instrumental versus intrinsic or ultimate distinction so Maybe you don't value being a podcast host as an, it's not an ultimate value. What you're really, what you really care about is, you know, being a big cheese or, Mm -hmm. um, or interacting with other people, social, social uh, Mm -hmm. interaction. Mm -hmm. And, and the podcast host thing is just a means to that other value. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you look at ultimate values as compared to instrumental values, you're probably more likely to find commonalities between people then the other distinction which is a distinction between abstract values and specific instantiations of those values. And this can it can look like the same distinction between instrumental and ultimate, but I think it's actually different. So I might value intellectual expression, and I might value that for its own sake, not just the pleasure that it brings, but for yeah, you know, I, I, it is the, it's a thing that I value. I just value the experience of doing that, um, engaging intellectually. My particular, and that's the abstract value, intellect, but Mm -hmm. my particular way of manifesting or instantiating that value in my life is philosophy and to some Mm -hmm. extent psychology. Uh, So that's a specific manifestation of a more abstract value. I mean, you know, similarly, like people value friendship, and, and people will say that, uh, what do you value? I value friendship. But what you actually value is the particular relationships you have with real friends. So the friendship is the abstract description of the value. And then the specific friends you have are the, are the um, it's, it's, that's the specific instantiation of the value. And there again, if, I think if you move to the abstract level, you'll find more agreement. And you're right that I think if you, if you get, if you look at only ultimate values and you get as abstract as possible, mm. you're more likely to find cross-cultural consensus about what's valuable. And it seems right. like that's what psychologists find. You know, people prioritize these things differently, but we have a lot of the same values across a wide variety of cultures. But you're right, Charles, that it doesn't become at that level of abstraction. It doesn't, mm. it's, it's not that meaningful anymore because the specific actions that people are taking are all different because of their different interpretations of these values. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, re- religion or spirituality would be an example. You know, exactly. They could, you could have two uh, religious groups and they both value religiosity, but the, the mechanics <laughs> of how that's going to play out <laughs> are, are going right. to cause some right. conflict, yeah. That leads me actually to the question about the alignment. Um, 
why do values have to be appropriately aligned in the system? So this is something that I think uh, if I understood uh, you correctly, Valerie, you tried to um, uh, promote in your book, in your, new, in your theory, uh, value fulfillment theory. So what is this alignment about and appropriate alignment and why is it necessary? The word I, I tend mm-hmm. to use is integration, yeah. um, that our values, we do better with values that are psychologically integrated. And I guess I think the reason for that from the armchair is um, <laughs> that when you lack psychological integration, the, the conflict presents to you as a reason uh, it, it presents to you as as something that undermines the thing that you value. So, you know, if you think about, say, um, a person who was raised in a very, very strict religion and what, like the Church of the Nazarene, where they, they don't believe mm-hmm. in dancing or singing or any kind of expression of, of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that's what I have heard about it anyway. So you have a person who grows up in this church and rejects the church ultimately uh, in part because they develop this love of dance and they turn out to be a really athletic and wonderfully talented dancer. But there's always, there's a residue of the upbringing where even though they want to dance and they have certain emotional, you know, they they do experience the joy from dancing and they think that when they think it through, they think dancing is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I can, I can build my life around this, but there are these other emotional responses that are kind of stuck, which uh, like, for instance, a feeling of shame when they, when they dance. I guess I think that person is worse off than the person who doesn't feel a sense of shame when they engage in the behavior that they otherwise value. Uh, so it's those sorts of cases where the it's the conflict that the the internal conflict that creates a problem for a person. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also I'm somewhat inter- influenced by um, I mentioned earlier this uh, project that I'm working on with a personality psychologist here at the at Minnesota, Colin DeYoung, um, mm-hmm. who has this cybernetic theory of personality called the, the right. cybernetic, cybernetic Big Five. And he, he has argued that if you think about personality as the kind of evolution, the, the evolutionary result of a developing cybernetic organism, a goal-seeking organism, it makes sense to think about well-being as psychological psychological integration and integrated uh, goals that fit the traits that and the characteristic adaptations that the organism has. Yeah. And he, with another of our colleagues, has argued that you can make sense of psychopathology by looking at goal disintegration. So looking at, I should say, psychological disintegration, <clears throat> where a person's goals and characteristic adaptations are at odds with each other or uh, with the traits that a person has. So I have been influenced in thinking about the importance of psychological integration actually by psychologists. Um, Mm -hmm. So you wrote a book called The Reflective Life, Living Wisely With Our Limits. And I really like the the opening part of the preface. So I don't imagine you have a copy of it right there. So I'm going to read. It probably sounds a bit weird with you here that I'm going to read a section from your book. Um, But it's just the very opening bit because it's excellent, I think. So it says, this is a book about how to live life wisely. You might think, given the title, that my answer would be to think and reflect more. But this is not my answer. I think that when we really take account of what we are like, 
when we recognize our psychological limits, we will see that too much thinking, rationalizing and reflecting is bad for us. Instead, I think we need to think and reflect better. In a nutshell, this means that we need to develop the habits of thought that constitute wisdom. We need to care about things that will sustain us and give us good experiences. We need to have perspective on our successes and failures, and we need to be moderately self-aware and cautiously optimistic about human nature. Perhaps more importantly, we need to know when to think seriously about our values, character choices, and so on, and when not to. A crucial part of wisdom is knowing when to stop reflecting and to get lost in experience. So I thought it's a great opening. It really grabbed it me. It sounds really good in a British accent. <laughs> well, Everything you, sounds better in a British accent. When, when you get the uh, contract for the, the audio book, just you've got my email. Just give me a call. That's fine. Um, but, so I guess a couple of questions that I had from that. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you think reflection is so central to living a good life. And then secondly, this idea about – I was really intrigued about the idea about when we – finding the balance between reflecting and introspection and then action and experience and immersing yourself in life itself. So, yeah, so maybe you could tell us why reflection is so important and then secondly, why it's also not the only thing and there's this other half to it, which seems to be experience. To some extent, I don't think I have an argument for why reflection is important. It's rather that I think human beings are reflective creatures. So it's kind of an inevitable thing that we do. Some of us do way more of it than others. You know, given how much emphasis there has been in philosophy on being reflective, my sort of angle was, well, you know, people are reflective about their lives, but let's rein it in. Right. Um, so so I, yeah. I was more coming from, you know, the, this book is not a popular book. It's a book written for philosophers. And my uh, thinking was philosophers think that a good life is a reflective life. And what can we say to to limit the praise of reflection or to, to make sure that reflection doesn't have too big a place in the kind of lives that we lead? And I guess there I was influenced by reading some books written by psychologists that had kind of come out around that time, like Jonathan Haidt's book, The Happiness Hypothesis, and Tim mm -hmm. Wilson's Strangers to Ourselves, where I was just confronting the idea that we, that reflection maybe isn't that good for us, and that there are these problems about what we can even know about ourselves. So I, you know, this was 10 years ago that I that I wrote the book. And I my, as I say, my um, orientation was very much like, well, reflection is good, but we have to qualify that. It seems like you were kind of getting out there being a loop between reflection and experience, like, because one argument, well, one thing that occurs to me is, you know, what's, when you talk about losing yourself in experience, does that have any, well, I th hesitate to use the word value loosely now, but does that have any value <laughs> just getting lost in experience? But you were kind of suggesting, well, yeah, maybe because it's sort of, learning about this elephant if you think you know the john height idea of you know we're this rider on an elephant but so we're we're trying to sort of think uh, carefully about what we should and shouldn't do but there's this big beast underneath us that's sort of kind of running the show but it seemed that you were suggesting by by immersing ourselves fully in experiences we kind of learn more about the elephant or we learn about our emotional responses and that can then be instrumental into better reflection is that kind of is there some sort of feedback loop that you were getting at there is that 
I, I think there absolutely is. I think we do learn thing, important things about ourselves from being lost in experience, but that's, that's a very reflectivist interpretation of the value of getting lost in experience because to me, the primary value of getting lost in experience is the experience. So right. I've known people in my life who are, I think, overly reflective about their relationships. So they're always questioning Mm. Uh, how good a friend is this person really? And how, how much do I really love her? And uh, if you have that internal critic always turned on when you're having dinner with somebody and having a conversation or, or watching a film together or whatever, uh, I don't think you're going to get the value out of the thing. Mm. You see what I mean? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if, if you love music, and every time you listen to a piece of music, all you can think about is how good is this experience for me right now? Yeah. Um, I think you're going to miss it. You then talk about sort of reflective virtues. And one of them that you mention is perspective. Perspective seems kind of a bit like a way of avoiding getting trapped in the moment too much. So there's this value of being in the moment because it's experiential and you know, absorbing. But then the idea of perspective seems to be... I think zooming out a little bit and making sure you're not over- overwhelmed by the moment. So mm-hmm. how does one find the balance between those? So it's interesting to me, I'm learning a lot about your personality here, Charles, because it's interesting to me that you would think the main point of perspective is to not sink too far into the moment. Um, because for me, the, the my emphasis was on not ascending too high into this abstract reflective standpoint where you're questioning things and wondering about stuff all the time. If you think about somebody who something like like work-life balance where you have a person who has a very busy and hectic job and then also has a family at home, I thought one of the examples of an ability to shift your perspective is the kind of person who can come home from the office and turn off the thoughts about their email and um, the demands of their coworkers and anxieties about their performance and fully pay attention to their family members. So that's an example of a shift of two absorbed per- perspectives, one mm-hmm. where you're absorbed in the, in the job, in the work, right. and the other where you're absorbed with your relationships. Right. But similarly, there's the perspective of the, the reflective perspective where you're kind of outside of your particular commitments and asking questions about the, the values that you have and how you're doing in your life. And I think the quality that I call attentional flexibility is the ability to move between those different perspectives. And the the benefit that you get from that is you will sometimes be reflective, which is important. If you never reflect on anything, your life might not go in a way that Mm. ends up very promising. But you also are able to get the value out of the things that you (laughs) care Mm. about Mm. when that's what you're doing. So to feel the joy of spending time with your children or your partner and to feel the the worthwhileness and the the excitement of the work that you do but how to do that kind of balancing that yeah that's the thing i just don't have a very good mm-hmm. answer well, to that's the ultimate wisdom <laughs> yeah yeah and you know well, i just almost aristotelian in a sense <laughs> don't they say that people you research things that you that you can't do oh that's clearly <laughs> true for me <laughs> exactly 
talking about some of these reflective virtues. I was also interested, some of the things in the book caught me off guard because I expect philosophers to always be saying you should be drilling down into find, finding the absolute truth about everything. That's the only way forward. But then you talk about when you suggest self-awareness as a, um, as a reflective virtue, you modify it by saying well, moderate self-awareness. You don't want to get too carried away. That's kind of an interesting idea that, you know, there are these, you know, perhaps there's some helpful incorrect ideas we have about ourselves and the people we love that to sort of to pull them apart would not lead to a a good life yeah i was i was motivated by some studies i read back then that might be might have fallen to the replication crisis and so i, I don't actually know if the if the research that kind of motivated me to have these thoughts is good research. I mean, you, you can you can tell me, but one of them was, and all I remember now is the results. I don't remember the actual studies, but one had to do with perceptions of success of marriage and perceptions of marital partners. So the, the finding was that uh, people who think that their partner is more beautiful and more intelligent and funnier than they really are uh, will have more successful mm. marriages. And to right. some extent, you know, beauty is not a, a totally objective thing, but still, there probably is some sense to make mm -hmm. out of thinking that someone could find you more beautiful than you than you are, according to everybody else, at least. <laughs> um, and then the research that found that uh, people who are depressed have the most accurate self perceptions. Mm. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if these findings have held up over time, but they, they are the kinds of things that, that motivated me, these thoughts that right. um, you don't want to have false beliefs that torpedo your prospect for getting things done. And you don't want to have delusions, yeah. grand, grand delusions about who you are and who the people in your life are. But these right. sort of softening the edges of things strikes me as kind of adaptive i think before uh, we, we are uh, coming uh, almost to an end now guys yeah, so that we are, i'm looking at the time before uh, we do a little summary and conclusion uh, i just want to ask uh, one more question that is valerie you've been switching from reflection uh, which was your previous book to value fulfillment theory helping others to live well which is your current book you're working on so how come how, why did you switch uh, from uh, living, uh, thinking about how to live well by ourselves to how to help others? So one answer to that question, there's, there's a, the, uh, I think most of the answers to that question are actually psychological answers, as in my psychology. So, so one, one thing is I had a lot of friends and friends of friends, friends of my sisters, just a, a lot of experiences since the 2008 book was finished of uh, friends who were going through really hard times. So mm -hmm. I just, in my personal life, I was thinking a lot about how you can be helpful to a friend. And, you know, I was stumbling a lot and feeling like it was hard to, to be a good friend to people who are struggling. So there's that. I also, in the reflective life, I, I, because it was so first person focused, I backed off of saying this is a theory of well-being. But then mm -hmm. in the literature, the book gets cited frequently as if it were a theory of well-being. And then there's often a little footnote that says, Tiberius doesn't present this as a theory of well-being, but it sure seems like <laughs> so. So that, that made me think, well, 
you know, I should just bite the bullet here and try to say what I think of it as a theory of well-being that <laughs> it isn't necessarily centered on the on the first person perspective. And then, you know, the I suppose the last reason has to do with psychology and the connections I've made to psychologists who many of whom are looking for, I think, for a more sophisticated way of understanding what well-being is than the kind of subjective well-being uh, constructs that they use, which which are great for what they are. But I think there are a lot of psychologists in that area who would like to connect those um, subjective well-being notions like life satisfaction and positive affect. They'd like to connect that to something bigger and something that's connected to values. And so that that motivated me to write a book that I'm kind, I'm hoping that psychologists could read. So I, I tried to write it in a way that doesn't make a lot of boring philosophy points. <laughs> we'll see how that works out. So, uh, so when is the book uh, coming out? So when can our listeners uh, buy it? It is out like next week, I think. But out in the UK week? first, it's it's um so it's Ox- Oxford UK is the publisher, and so it'll be available. Yeah, within weeks. Beautiful. So uh, to everybody who is listening, uh, look out for the new book by Valerie Tiberius, Value Fulfillment Theory, Helping Others to Live Well. That's the title, right? Uh, no, that's... No, <laughs> no I, I made up the second part of that. That was a little... <laughs> the uh, title that's is... Our, that, that's our add-on to the title. Yeah. Okay. The title is Well-Being as Value Fulfillment, How We Can Help Each Other to Live Well. It's a much better title. That works. I can see why they went with that. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Excellent. I think, yeah. I know we're sort of really going over time, but I, this idea of helping friends, um, mm. again, maybe you don't want to get too practical about it, but is is there a sort of kind of, you know, you've got your four reflective virtues from book one, 2008. Do you have a sort of short list of, of, of oh, um, characteristics no, about how you can because... be a, a better friend? Right. The main, I really talk about one main virtue in the book, which is humility. Okay. Um and I, I don't mean I don't mean the kind of self abnegation or putting yourself down. Yeah. I mean a sort of epistemic humility, some a hesitation to think that you know everything about what it's like to be somebody else, forbearance in judging other people negatively about their values and their choices. Humility is the main mm-hmm. virtue I focus on, and and I I think there again my emphasis had to do with my own experiences and talking to other mainly women friends about our friendships mm. and just thinking about how difficult it is to really understand what and exactly how another person cares about whatever it is that they care about and how that makes it difficult to know how to help them make their lives go better. Because I mean, right. the, the idea of thinking that, that what you think isn't necessarily right is a real challenge for the brain, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people take it to be an important part of wisdom, too, don't they? Mm. An epistemic humility. Yeah, right. Well, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it because I've got some friends who could do with some help. So I better get on with it. Um, Eagle. Yes. Give it as a present to your judgiest friends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's right. Back off, guys. Read it. Look, says humility, page 34. Um, Eagle, will you be able to give us a summary? 
Uh, sure. So today we talked about a bridge between philosophy and psychology. I think that's a, a we had a perfect guest, uh, Valerie Tiberius. Valerie, thank you so much for being here today uh, with us and uh, giving us sort of the philosophical perspective on some of the questions that so far we only were looking from the broader psychological uh, viewpoint. Uh, we talked about values and limits of reflection. So that we talked about how. We sometimes uh, need uh, perspective, but we also raise the question, how can it be measured? And maybe you cannot be measured via self-reports, uh, but then how can uh, this be measured uh, from the perspective uh, that would satisfy both philosophers and psychologists? Something for future generations probably to address and figure out. We talked about values. Values that are complex, complex patterns of attitudes. They include desires, they include beliefs, they include judgments. And um, taking this perspective of values, which uh, may be also linked to such things as personal projects or other terms that are used in, the, in psychology and in philosophy, uh, we uh, talked about the distinction between ultimate and instrumental values or abstract and specific instantiation of values that, you know, you can value fr being uh, friendly or value friendship, but really you're more valuing specific friendships that you have in your life. Then we talked about value integration, that sometimes you need an integration of values, and if the values are not integrated, then it may actually undermine uh, your values in the first place. Uh, and linking it to some other theories, including that uh, by Colin DeYoung about the cybernetic model of personality. For those of you who are interested, check out Colin's uh, work. And after that, we switch to uh, the discussion of reflection. Uh, the discussion of reflection in the sense that reflecting sometimes can be too much, and we need to know uh, how to reflect. And that uh, sometimes we need to figure out the balance between uh, when to take a step back and uh, become all reflective versus zero and zoom in uh, on a particular issue at hand. At the end, uh, we talked about value fulfillment and uh, how to um, help others uh, to live well and uh, what qualities uh, make uh, us better place to help friends. And if you want to know more about that, uh, check out a new book by Valerie Tiberius that is coming out in the next few weeks. So that was the summary. Did I miss anything? Sounds pretty good to me. Nice. Like it. Excellent. Valerie, thank you very much. Um, I, we've kept you for much longer than we expected. That's your fault for being so interesting. So sorry about that. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. It was, it was really fun. I enjoyed it. It was great. Yeah, thank you, Valerie. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Rate us on iTunes so you can give my mum a rest. And uh, we look forward to talking more next time.